welcome to the video verse. I am here with uh, my esteemed co-host Zoe Liu, and our guest today. If you've if you've been in the world of I'm going to say video codec as the broad term, uh, I'm guessing you've heard of him before. Thomas, why don't you tell us really quick uh, who you are, what it is you do, kind of on a, on a uh, big picture. Hey, I'm uh, Thomas Deddy. I work uh, at Vimeo on uh, video transcoding team there. Um, I previously also worked at Mozilla um, on the AV1 uh, video coding standard, as well as the testing framework for it. Awesome. Yeah, you have a very interesting uh, history with codecs in general. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, because you shared a little bit about this with off, Canada, off camera, and I, I kind of geeked out with you on this. Tell me a little bit about the really early days, how you got into, I'm going to say codec, I'm using that as my broad term. Um, you had a project that you were working on that forced you into it. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, so I actually, uh, back in like 2013, 2014, I also had a hobby of doing uh, radio controlled airplanes. Right. Um, this was right during or right before that like quadcopters and uh, drones started to take off. So at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of really good video um, transmission from the um, airplane to the ground available. Um, they had just started coming up with some digital systems, but mostly what everyone used is uh, people had uh, analog systems. So they had these little cameras. Um, I actually have a little demo here. Um, this yeah. is a, uh, um, uh analog NTSC transmitting camera. So it sends a very wide bandwidth signal um, at a couple gigahertz to a receiver. And, and that's the antenna hanging off the end of that we see? Ex exactly, yep. Okay. So we got a little, little, little short um, gigahertz level antenna. Yeah. And this and a little whip antenna on here and uh, power. And these things were not so great. Um, the range was pretty poor. Um, uh, of course, line of sight usually only. That's okay for an airplane usually. But uh, right. Um, it got noisy really quick. Um, the, the these are all analog and they tend to drift all over the place. You have to retune them. Um, and I really wanted to have something better than that. Um, so I actually wanted to do digital video transmission. Which at the time, was anybody doing that? Um, there, there were a couple of very expensive systems that did it. Um, okay. But the problem was that video bandwidth is very high. And so you need very expensive, fancy radios that have um, a large amount of bandwidth. Um, so a lot of people would do things like use uh, uh, 5 gigahertz uh, Wi-Fi antennas. But Wi-Fi is okay. also not so good for long range. So they would do things right. like modified Wi-Fi antennas. Mm -hmm. um, they would do things like patch antennas that could automatically rotate and tilt toward the airplane. Oh, wow. um, there, there, were, there were some systems out there, but they were um, kind of very specialized and expensive. And so uh, uh, I, I also kind of was rolling my own stuff there. I'd already rolled my own uh, actual, the, the airplane control was its own uh, radio already. Um, so uh -huh. I kind of wanted to try something myself and see if I could outperform the systems there. Right. And yeah. what's the result? Did you out? Yeah, yeah. what happened? So, uh, <laughs> um, uh, what I did is I, I, I decided I wanted to basically cram my video as small as possible. I wanted the, the very smallest bandwidth so I didn't have to resort to using these very expensive, complicated radios. Um, so I instead looked around for um, basically the state of video compression that I could possibly use to send it. Um, there's all of these like H.264 and the like. Um, I wasn't super excited about H.264 because A, it had been around a while, so it was no longer state of art. Um, I also didn't, you know, it was my own personal project, but I also didn't like the fact that for a lot of these newer codecs, I had to pay licensing fees for the codec <laughs> I'd be implementing myself anyway. Right? It, it felt a little bit backwards. So 
I, I ended up looking for like new research video codecs. And I found actually that the team at Mozilla and Ziff was working on this video codec called DALA, which is a uh, experimental uh, codec. And I uh, basically looked at it, it looked good. And I went and I implemented part of it on, um, in particular, I implemented the transform and um, lapping step in an FPGA. So the idea was that the FPGA would be um, fast enough to do real-time encoding of it um, in the air. Wow. wow! So finally, you deployed the FPGA version. Of yeah, I, I did the FPGA version first, right? Because because the idea was I couldn't on the low power budget I had too on the plane. It wasn't terribly low. It was more like you know if I put like a ton of battery in there, that would add weight. Um, uh, the idea was that the FPGA version would be able to vastly outperform any software implementation, um, especially at the yeah. time. Can you so, talk a little so, bit about Dala? Because I'm not sure whether. Yeah. Sorry, I, I think. No, go uh, ahead. Tell us a little bit about uh, that. You can just, uh, just uh, please do. Because uh, uh, Dala, I'm pretty familiar with that in some sense uh, because that was basically Mozilla's uh, initiative on having a royalty-free open source uh, video yep. codec. But you may want uh, to talk a little bit more about that to our audience. Yeah. Um, so that was a, it was a, is a research codec. It still exists. If you want to go find the code base, um, it was basically designed around several unique, uh, principles. So it had a, uh, lap transform. So instead of a normal video codec that has just plain, um, discrete cosine transform blocks that are then usually blurred together with some sort of post filter. Um, this one used an invertible filter that ran in between the blocks. So the idea is it would basically kind of mix the blocks together on the edges. And you, and you do that, that your normal um, uh, square transforms. I mean, code those, and you do the inverse transform both on the, the square transforms and then the overlapping part. An idea that was that this would avoid um, the blocking artifacts that normally appear in video codecs, but it would also avoid the blurring problems that appear when you use a traditional video codecs um, deblocking filter. Um, it also had a couple other things. It had a, a, a more perceptual quantizer um, called PVQ. Um, it had a uh, range coder that was uh, designed to be multi-symbol and basically work quite a bit faster um, than um, other range uh, ranger arithmetic coders, um, and basically have a, a basically cram as many possibilities into a single symbol as possible to keep the symbol rate down for the overall video. Um, so it had a uh, uh, and it also had a sub uh, post filter um, called CDF that was um, basically there to clean up the edges further. It was actually um, the original idea was that we wanted to make really nice vector uh, art uh, look good. So we had this filter that would, uh, uh, the idea is that we code a bunch of edges and we'd like kind of do this paint. So we would uh, um, code like the top and left edge. And we'd, we'd basically make our own, draw a line through each block. And that would be a predictor. Um, that didn't work super well. But what did work is using that same um, predictor, but as a post filter. So we basically find an edge in the image and then clean it up um, it, with the same method. Um, so, so DALA became a, a part of the uh, AV1 video standard once a, a, the Alliance for Open Media was formed. Uh, we uh, basically combined several pieces of different video codecs. Um, basically, the base video codec for AV1 was VP9, but we did add several of the DALA features. Um, we sadly didn't, the lap transforms didn't get in there, uh, maybe in the future, but we did get the range coder. So the range coder with some modifications is what's in AV1. Um, and then the CDF post filter also with some modifications is what's in uh, one of the post filters available in AV1 as well.
I'm, I'm glad you said that because as you were talking, I was thinking I'm hearing echoes here of, of AV1 stuff potentially. Uh, so that explains why the, some of that stuff transitioned over. Was that, was that the way that did you basically get pulled into the AV1 world at that point because of your involvement with Dala or was, how did you end up getting involved with AV1? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the goals were aligned, right? We, uh, okay. We saw that uh, at Mozilla, right, uh, the, the licensing terms that had come out for um, other competing codecs like HEVC were basically not shippable for us with Firefox being a free product. Um, we couldn't, like, we couldn't charge them out that, that amount for a thing that's a free right. download that anyone can download and install and have zillions of installs for. Um, <laughs> so that licensing model didn't work for us. So we were already working on Dala as a potential replacement um, with some, hopefully with other adopters as well. Um, but it turned out this was a problem for other people as well. And so basically, um, uh, eventually we've got several other people on board, which you can, you know, there's a long list on Alliance for Open Media Group. Um, that was actually um, kind of kind of an independent, separate effort. Um, but um, eventually everyone with the same sort of problem came together and we decided it was best. Obviously, we didn't want to make like a dollar codec and an AV1 codec. So we, we decided to combine forces um, because um, if we all had the same basically goal in mind, um, we might as well make one, one really good video codec with all the yeah. efforts of everyone. Is that kind of a bit, and I'll, I'll ask this question to both you guys, because this is a world that you've been, I'm going to say eyeballs deep in, and, and I have been a little bit involved in, but not as much. Is that a big deal amongst engineers to see all these different standards come together and turn into a single standard? Because I'm imagining each contributor is going to have to contribute something, but then also forfeit something. Am I thinking the right way about what that process might have been like? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of compromises. It's you know sometimes difficult as an engineer to not see your stuff get adopted or put in. Right. Um, there's no uh, because AV1 is a, uh, a a royalty free codec. There's no like financial incentive. Like you're not gonna if you're uh, some of our codecs. There's like a big financial incentive if you get your stuff in because maybe you get more right. licensing fees. AV1 doesn't have that, but you still have quite a bit of pride as an engineer, right? So right. Um, you still. There, there's still some emotion that if your stuff doesn't get in or does get in. Um, certainly, there is stuff I'd love to get in that didn't happen, maybe for a future codec. Um, but it's it's a it's a big uh, debate and process. And like that's actually also something I was involved in because I worked on AB1 testing. Um, so I was part of, one of the people responsible for how do we test all these new additions to AB1 and how we decide which ones really improve the video quality and which ones don't. Fascinating. That's what I was imagining because engineers are engineers, but they're creative people at heart. You know, they're, they're creatively solving problems. And so uh, I can see where, where you put your heart and soul into something. But in some ways, it almost feels like AV1 is kind of democratized codec in a way. Because if you said there's no financial incentives, there's the pride factor. But now it's everyone can contribute, right? Yeah. Um, it does. Uh, uh, basically, the... Um, you do have to like sign up for a, uh, the AOM to get inside right. a lot of the meetings. Um, however, the the code base that the standard code base we work on is an open source code base, and so there's basically ways even for people outside of that to contribute as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, not really shifting gears, but diving a little deeper into your involvement with AV1. I know you've worked pretty closely with um, specifically. I mean, AV1 has so many tools and, and capabilities, but specifically the HDR 
support the HDR factor when it comes to AV1. It seems like HDR video is one of the things that often brings AV1 up in conversation. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role that AV1's HDR capabilities play uh, as far as encoding video and, and how it how it helps? Yep. Um, this is actually something that I'm currently working on at Vimeo. So that's uh, one of our, our big pushes. Um, cool. But, uh, so HDR has been doable for a long time, even on older codecs. Um, right. But it brings up with it a lot of challenges that make a newer codec like AV1 be a lot better. Um, probably the, like the first uh, big benefit is that uh, it's basically 10-bit by default everywhere. Um, so the very baseline profile of AV1 has 10-bit support. So you're pretty much guaranteed if something has a hardware AV1 decoder, it's going to be able to decode 10-bit. Huh. Um, and 10-bit is important for um, HDR because HDR's wider dynamic range means that banding artifacts and the like are going to be much more visible um, than they would with SDR. And so having those extra bits to reduce any visible banding artifacts is much more important for HDR. Um, AV1 is not the first video codec to mandate 10 bits. Um, however, it, it, in practice, it is the first video codec that's in a browser that we can rely on having 10 bits for. Interesting. Um, so, so AV1 essentially, and I'm asking, is making, as AV1 becomes more popular and more standard, essentially they're making 10-bit the de facto, if you will. 8-bit's always been the de facto, but now 10-bit eventually will become the de facto. Is that fair to assume? Yeah, that's fair to assume. Um, I think a lot of users of AV1 are just jumping straight to 10-bit. There yeah. is 8-bit um, AV1 if you want. Um, there are some advantages using 8-bit AV1. For example, if you're using a pure software decoder, um, you can still decode 8-bit AV1 faster than 10-bit on a CPU. So, okay. for example, if you if you're target if you really want to get you know really high quality low file size AV1 video and you're targeting lower power computing devices that don't have a hardware decoder then you might still want to consider generating um, AV1 8-bit video. Uh, usually for SDR, okay. you wouldn't want to do that for HDR. But um, for a lot of these uh, HDR cases and the like, 10-bit uh, is the most sensible option. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I know it a lot from the, the capture side, the camera side. I, you know, I, I want to upgrade to a 10-bit camera. Uh, but of course, if the whole pathway doesn't support 10-bit, uh, and that's, I guess that's where AV1 gets exciting for someone like me who's a content creator and I'm capturing video. If I capture 10-bit and I know that it can get delivered at 10-bit, it just means that much more of my original picture has been retained. Is that right? Yep. Um, in particular, um, one thing that's uh, not always obvious about the 8 versus 10-bit difference is that you might think that you know, computer monitors, for example, most of them are 8-bit RGB. So right, that the, that. the difference between, you know, 8 and 10-bit's not going to be visible because if I only have an 8-bit monitor, then how am I going to see the advantage that 10-bit right. gives? Um, but there's actually a couple of reasons um, that you'll actually see an advantage, even if you only have an 8-bit monitor. Um, hmm. One is that uh, video is not stored in 8-bit RGB. It's stored in YUV, and it's a limited range, like 16 to 235 are the values used for 8-bit YUV. Um, as well as like that plus the um, color conversion means that um, you actually get, uh, for most 8-bit video, you get less than 8-bit RGB um, quantization. So you can get banding from that, and 10-bit will um, basically avoid that. The other reason is because on a lot of natural video, like straight off a camera, you're going to have lots of noise that causes dithering, and that dithering is going to mask over any sort of banding artifacts. 
Um, so you won't see them directly off the camera. Unfortunately, uh, video codecs are really, really bad at encoding basically noise and um, dithering because totally. they take a lot of bits. And so most video yeah. encoders will just smooth them out. But the downside is that once you remove those, they're no longer masking the banding. And that makes the banding that is there uh, much huh. more visible um, because you'll now see those. Instead of, instead of seeing a, a smooth gradient that's been dithered, as more and more pixels become the next color, you see this sharp line between the two uh, quantization steps. Right. Yeah, especially still experienced that with quite some customers video we see, especially for example in the sky area, and the wall and the smooth right like the background in the wall, and if you see it's only some bending because you see some art artificial pattern down there, it's very visible and quite annoying, and yeah, so like you point out. Thomas that when we get to 10 bit, that's actually a great tool to um, like naturally remove such kind of uh, or avoid such kind of artifacts to be manifested in the finally decoded video. So, so I'm also interesting that so you particularly mentioned if using software decoding and 10 bit will be a challenge, right? Because it's actually imposed some of the complexity down there. Yep. Um, so the problem with software encoding is that basically we have to, uh, software encoding and decoding is that we have to operate on um, basically uh, word sizes that the CPU supports. So That's CPU right. support, for example, 8 bits and 16 bits. Um, and so we actually can't generally use 10-bit um, storage in the CPU. Um, uh, we have to if we use 10 bit, we have to jump all the way to 16 bit, which basically means a lot of data paths become twice as slow. Um, it's not as bad as it sounds, though. Um, there are, uh, because a lot of the, the, once it's out of the memory and into uh, like registers and being operated on, it's not nearly so bad. Um, so the actual, in theory, you might expect like 8 to 10 bit because we're moving from like 8 bit to 16 bit register to be twice as slow on software. Right. It's not actually quite twice as slow. Um, there, it's, it's, it is slower, but uh, you don't get quite as bad of a hit. Um, there's also some, I know there's been some work on doing other things like, uh, uh, the, uh, there's been attempts at, uh, using packed formats in memory, um, to avoid reduced to memory bandwidth, even in software encoders and decoders by, um, when the, basically when the frame is not being touched as much, it's packed into, uh, uh, like the, the extra high bits are used for another byte of video. And so we don't have to have those extra wasted bits in memory. But yeah, do you do you have an idea that how much your like complexity with it is amended? It's not double. It's definitely less than double in terms of complexity because exactly yeah. Yeah, the decoder is usually because when the encoder sometimes complexity is more less more tolerant than the, on the decoder side, and so I just wonder. Um, as you just mentioned, it's not as bad if we have a 10-bit software decoder down there. And and it's also furthermore, because you, you do mention that Vimeo is toward this effort. So in the current market, have you observed uh, like the ecosystem is there, for example, for supporting AV1 10-bit hardware-wise? Uh, um, so if we're relying on hardware decoders, yes, the the Basically, the ecosystem seems to have, if there's an AV1 decoder, there's an AV1 10-bit hardware decoder. Um, uh, we are, because we're looking at like doing this in web browsers and the like, there are 
Uh, we are going to be using on, say, desktops, we're going to be using software encoders quite a bit of the time um, because for like desktops, only very recent GPUs um, have AV1 hardware decode. Um, but the ones that do, do usually always have 10-bit and uh, uh, they seem to work pretty well. Um, so th there will be, as we work on this, right, we'll, we'll probably have more numbers in the future that tell exactly how, um, you know, what percentage of devices that we can support with this. And I imagine it's also only going to increase over time. But yeah, uh, you need the hardware support, right? Exactly. Yep. And uh, like even with if you have software, doing software in 10 bit is totally OK um, for decode for uh, quite a mm -hmm. lot of devices. Um, once once you get up, a, if, if you want to like do 4K decoding, it's it a little bit challenging, especially with like laptops. Um, 1080 is usually totally fine. 1080, 10 bit, uh, you'll only be fine. Um, what about on mobile? Um, I actually haven't run the numbers on mobile recently um, because uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, ARM improvements that have still gone into David. Um, so I, I can't actually give you the exact numbers on, on that one. Um, so we'll see. The, the good news is that on mobile, you usually don't actually have to decode 4K um, because usually the screen is not a 4K screen anyway. Um, the bad news is, of course, that mobile is much higher, uh, uh, basically much a much slower CPU and the power consumption matters more. Um, but it's, it, it is surprisingly effective. Um, I know uh, on my current phone, I can decode 8-bit 1080p AV1 in software just fine. Um, I haven't actually tried 10-bit on it yet, so I'm not sure exactly awesome. on that phone. What, yeah, what you, mentioned, you mentioned David down here, so you may want to also have some intro about what David is. Uh, yeah, Nathan, David is not the name of a person, it's the name of the, inco uh, the decoder. The decoder, yeah. Uh, open source community decoder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and actually we have uh, Jean-Baptiste Kempf uh, joining us uh, on one of our episodes coming up here. Uh, who was one of the founders of Videolan, who, who developed that. So, uh, so yeah, so if that's interesting, then make sure you capture, catch that episode as well, because he, he dives into the college days of when they first developed that. But yeah, David is the, is the, the decoder. Yep, it's what it was, enable us to do this fast software decode. Um, it has right. handwritten assembly in it for both. Uh, it has a whole set of 8-bit assembly and a whole set of separate 10-bit assembly. Um, and so... As that you know, the 10-bit assembly has matured. It's allowed us, allowed us to basically, you know, really embrace that 10-bit in software um, much more than we could before. Interesting. This. Yeah. Tell me if I'm correct. I, I'm asking the the experts here. When HEVC got rolled out, I remember a similar conversation happening where. Initially, the whole conversation was, you know, can we roll it out with software decoding because not a lot of devices have hardware support. And then eventually more and more devices did HEVC decoding because I think when Apple rolled it out as their standard, none of their phones supported it, I don't think. Maybe their newest one they're releasing. Is, am I thinking right? Did this happen with HEVC as well? Um, so it, it kind of did, but... Um, uh one difference, I think, between the development theory processes of AV1 and HEVC is that with AV1, it was very important for us to have um, a, a very fast software coder from the start. Okay. Um, so a lot of the parts of AV1 are designed so that they were not only efficient to implement in hardware, because eventually everyone's going to have hmm. hardware, um, but right. also so that until then, we could also have a fast software implementation. And there's several features of AV1 that lend itself better to software implementation, um, like um, for example, our transforms just have lower complexity than HEVCs um, because they're designed differently. Um, or 
uh, Entropy Coder is generally faster to implement in software from DAL. Okay. Um, not to brag about that, um, but uh, it does help. <laughs> Please um, do. And uh, the other thing is because we, uh, you know, uh, we had David being developed uh, near to the end of the, the standardization, and we spent a lot of effort on making sure David was a decoder that could be used by everyone. It's very liberally licensed. Um, pretty much anyone can use it for free, put it, ship it in their yeah. product. And having that, um, having that really good software implementation ready to use is a big help. Um, oh, the HEVC, the I don't think, ever quite got a similar software implementation that was equally as, you know, in, in the same ballpark of speed and optimization that David is. Fair enough. That's exciting for the future of AV1, for sure. To, to show you that, I learned quite a bit from your Thomas. We really hope that we can have you again, because, uh, again, this is really just one want to promote technologies. Mm-hmm.